Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Chef and former California resident Kenji Lopez-Alt has done nothing short of, quote, influencing and changing how America cooks and thinks about food. That's according to GQ and a reference to his groundbreaking first book, The Food Lab, which focused not on recipes, but how food is cooked, the science behind a perfectly seared steak or behind getting the best version of any dish. Lopez Alt's new book is decidedly different. It's full of recipes and techniques that they're, and they're centered on one pan, the walk. Kenji Lopez Alt, welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you on. So tell me why the walk? Why did you choose to make this tool <laughs> the focus of a really big book? Um, well, well, so originally when I was writing my first book, The Food Lab, there was a chapter in there on um, cooking with walks. Um, and in fact, in that book, there's still this two-page spread um, talking about how much I love my walk and why it's the most versatile plan in the kitchen, why it's the one that I um, cook most of my meals out of. Uh, and uh, and then there's no recipes for it in the rest of the book because we ended up cutting that walk chapter um, for length reasons. Uh, but then when I started writing my second book, um, which was going to be a follow-up to the food lab, um, I started with the, with the walk chapter and, you know, I, and I started realizing as I was getting into it, you know, how much, how much more I had to say than just a single chapter. So, you know, cause I was like 200 pages in and I hadn't even really gotten to stir fries yet. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I ended up, um, calling up my editor and telling, you know, Telling her we should we should just write a whole book on the walk because you know I'm I'm not through stir fries yet and I still haven't covered like deep frying pan frying braising steaming rice noodles like all these different things you can do in there um, yeah so I mean so it's that's essentially why it's because it's such a versatile pan um, you're, there's so many different cooking techniques you can do so many different dishes um, but it's also just a very practical one um, because it's you know inexpensive. Uh, you can get a wide variety of different meals out of it um, very quickly, often very quickly. Um, you know, for that reason, like it's been a pan um, that I've used. You know, I, I bought a wok when I was in college. Um, one, of the first, one of the first pans I bought for myself. And that exact same wok is the same one that I've used for the past 20 whatever years. So, oh, wow. you know, as, as a college student, as a single guy, as a you know, person with roommates, um, and now, you know, with, with a family, with kids and everything, it's the same, same pan. Um, and it's been, it's been useful to me <laughs> that whole time. Did you find yourself reaching for your walk a lot more since you had kids? Um, I would say, I mean, pretty, pretty even actually. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, um, 
yeah, certainly, you know, a lot of the, there, there's some dishes that like, you know, w- when you have kids, there's some dishes you make that, you know, whatever happens, you know, that your kid is going to eat this thing. Um, and, you know, the sort of go-to dish when you can't decide what you're going to make for your kid. Um, and so that one is a, um, the, the mapo tofu recipe from the book. That's the, the Japanese style mapo tofu, which is the one that I grew up eating. Um, yeah. My daughter will eat that anytime. So that dish has certainly seen a lot more rotation uh, since since uh, my daughter's been old enough to eat. I, I did love that detail that it was 80s infomercials and not your Japanese Japanese mom's use of the wok that, that really ignited <laughs> your curiosity. <laughs> yeah, well, there there was an old infomercial on... Uh, there. I, I used to watch a lot of infomercials, <laughs> but um, there was uh, an old infomercial called the, the Great Wok of China um, that showed, um, you know, somebody severely overcooking food in a wok at a slow simmer. But, um, uh, but it, it was the first time I'd seen, um, sort of live footage of a wok being used, um, in China to cook things other than what I saw my mom cook. Um, and, you know, and then of course on TV, people like, like Martin Yan came along and I started yeah. seeing a lot more of that, of that, con- that kind of content. Did you feel weird at all writing about Chinese food and Chinese recipes, when you're not Chinese? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, that's, that is a good question. Um, so, well, first of all, the, you know, the entire book is not Chinese. Obviously right. there's, there's other, other cuisines in there as well, but, um, but yeah, as to, you know, the, the, the way I sort of saw it as, is that there, you know, there are, there are people who've written um, good Chinese cookbooks, um, you know, real authorities, people like Grace Young, Fuchsia Dunlop, people who, you know, who've, um, I think done more of the legwork to write a real sort of regional Chinese cookbook or a more sort of authentic Chinese cookbook. Um, the way I try and um, uh, show everything in my book, it, you know, it's, it's much more focused on technique as opposed to a specific um, cuisine. Um, and, you know, and I, and I always try and, and present the various recipes as, uh, um, in terms of uh, my own experience with them. So there's, you know, there is some, sort of regional Chinese stuff in there that um, I've learned either through traveling or through, um, you know, working with um, chefs or researching chefs um, who um, have done, have done those dishes. Uh, But there's also a lot of sort of Chinese American stuff. There's things that, you know, I grew up with eating um, that, you know, my parents would cook out of the Joyce Chen cookbook, things like that. So um, it's, it's much more, you know, the perspective of a, of a, of an Asian American as opposed to, uh, a you know, historian of Chinese cuisine. Well, when people think about a wok, or at least I do, I do think stir fry immediately. Mm-hmm. And the first part of your book is devoted to the science of stir fries. Can you walk us through what you found to be like the key to a great stir fry? <laughs> well, so so there, there's a huge variety of stir fries, first of all. Um, so it's, there, you know, there's no one real secret key, but for the vast majority of them, I think what you're going to find uh, is going to improve them the most uh, compared to what you might have done in the past is to cook in very small batches. Um, so, you know, I remember in those old wok commercials, they would say, now you add your ingredients in one at a time and you end up with this kind of wok that's completely full of stuff um, and everything's kind of steaming and, and sitting in its own juices in there, which is sort of the opposite of what you want with a stir fry. You know, the, the whole goal of a stir fry, um, and it, it should really be called the toss fry because you're tossing the food up in the air as opposed to stirring it. Um, but the real goal of a stir fry is to get, um, is to encourage evaporation and very rapid cooking um, so that as your food is being tossed in the air, there's moisture coming off of it um, and, you know, flying up. 
out, out of the pan so that your food cooks a lot faster and it doesn't end up sort of simmering in its own juices. Um, so one of the ways you can prevent that is by cooking in smaller batches. Um, and so what the general process I use for a stir fry is I'll cook each ingredient. Um, sometimes I'll split the ingredients in half, even if they're, if they're, um, you know, more than say half a pound or so at a time, um, I'll cook each one in succession and then transfer it onto a tray or into a big bowl. Uh, so that way, as I'm cooking each ingredient, the wok is staying really nice and hot and it's behaving the way, um, that it should by drying out the food. And then at the very end, um, I'll put everything back into the preheated wok again and toss it with the sauce. Um, and so, you know, at, at, at home, I find that, you know, that's a much more efficient way than trying to just cram everything into the pan at the same time. And of course you get better flavor in the end too. And people can watch you do this on your cooking show. You have Kenji's cooking show on YouTube. And one of the mm -hmm. things that's really fun about watching that, I ended up watching several of your episodes, is it's just so chill. It's like so relaxed. You're so casual. And uh, you're, you're like <laughs> popping this GoPro camera on your head and just kind of showing us what you're doing. And you're not really worried about like cinematography or like beautiful food shots. Right. <laughs> um. I mean, part, you know, part of that is an artifact of the the fact that I just, uh, like the YouTube video stuff is kind of a, just a fun project for me. And, and if there was more production value and I had to prepare much more for each video, then it wouldn't be just a fun project for me. It would be, you know, work. But um, I think, you know, but, but I do think, yeah, there's the the appeal that people have, that, that it's had with people so far, um, at least people who don't get a headache from watching that GoPro footage. Um <laughs> But I think the appeal to it is that it, you know, I, it's sort of, I, I think of it as sort of like the anti-cooking show, you know, because I, I don't prepare anything in advance. I don't really have a script I'm working off of. I, I, I just cook something. And if I, if I make a mistake, it stays in there. Or if I am substituting an ingredient, it stays in there. Um, and so I think, um, you know, like people who read my first book and who read a lot of my recipes on Serious Eats or have read them like Cooks Illustrated, for example, mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people... Uh, think of those types of recipes because they're written for a sort of technically minded crowd. You know, the, the food lab articles and uh, are sort of written for, yeah, people, a technically minded crowd. Um, I think a lot of them see recipes as a, as a, as a prescription, you know, they, they see recipes as like, you must do it this way. You must do it that way because this is how you get the best chocolate chip cookie or whatever. Um, whereas, you know, part of the, my goal with a lot of those articles was, sort of that was sort of the opposite it was they were meant you know they were written in order to get you to understand um technique and you know sort of the basics of food science to the point where the recipes you know how you can change them without you know sort of breaking them um and so i, I you know for for me i i always consider recipes just suggestions you know um and i'd rather i'd rather get ideas from recipes and then sort of work with what i have at home um in order to um you know, keep my meals interesting. And, and that's sort of what I, what I try and reflect in the, sh in the, um, in the YouTube show is that it's, you know, once, once you understand how recipes work and how food science works and how technique works, um, then you can just sort of fudge it in the kitchen and you'll, and, and, you know, and, and you'll, you'll know how to make it taste good, uh, taste good, even without a very precise recipe. Yeah. We're talking with chef Kenji Lopez Alt. He's got a new book called The Walk, Recipes and Techniques. He's also a New York Times food columnist and host of Kenji's Cooking Show on YouTube, which we were just talking about. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What do you want to ask Kenji? Or what's your favorite Kenji recipe or technique? Or maybe you have questions specifically about The Walk. Anyway, you can call us at 866 733 
6786-866-7336786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can email your questions and thoughts to forum at kqed.org. It's interesting to hear you talk about the things that you wrote for Serious Eats, how you wrote them for a more technically minded audience. And also hearing you describe talking about like, okay, this is the best recipe for chocolate chip cookies and so on. Because one of the things that um, I was struck by and that's been pointed out in other interviews that you've done is that you no longer seem to be using those terms best or perfect. Um, and I was wondering if that was really deliberate, if it, if it marked um, a real deliberate departure for you. Um, it, yeah, you know, it was it was deliberate. Um, so, you know, early on, even when we were at Serious Seats, you know, we often had discussions about should we call this, you know, the, the, this list of sandwiches the best, like if we haven't really had every single sandwich, you know, or should we just call it sandwiches we love or really good sandwiches. Um, but, you know, with, with recipes, especially what we found was, of course, you know, the, the, the quality of the content matters, so the quality of the writing and recipe testing and making, you know, building a reputation, reputationally, all that matters. Um, but as far as you know, immediate clicks early on, um, that kind of you know, calling calling it the best meatloaf or whatever gives you more clicks than just really good meatloaf. And back in those days, you know, the the, the blog economy, um, serious eats, it was all based on clicks, and so you had to do a lot of this stuff to be able to you know keep the lights on. Um, and so and so what that resulted in is that you know we, we were sort of judicious with our use of um, is that the right word we, we 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 didn't throw the best on everything but we did throw it on sort of anything that we um, it, it sort of it, it, it indicated that in this recipe we're going to be testing everything and explaining everything and, and sort of pre predefining what best means and then and then working towards that goal um, I did have a sort of conscious, yeah, made a conscious decision after my book came out. You know, I started seeing um, a lot more on you know various internet forums. People um, just sort of taking that word "best" a little bit too seriously um, to the point where it felt like you know often um, recipes or what what serious eats or what I had defined as the best was kind of weaponized against anybody who didn't you know conform to that specific definition of what best is. Um, which is never really how, you know, I intended any of that work to be used, but, um, um, you know, but that, that's what I was seeing. And so um, these days, um, I, I mean, I never use the word best anymore. I'll, I'll say something is really good or whatever. And, and I, and I do often as well in my videos, at least try and stress, you know, ways people can stray from recipes or what they can do if they can't get a specific ingredient or whatever. Um, uh, you know, because, because best is just a really situational thing it depends on you know, what's best for you is not best for me what's best for me today might not be best for me tomorrow and it all just depends on you know what mood you're in and what you have in your fridge and what what you what you're trying what specific goal you're trying to accomplish at the moment is that the message you were trying to send with your children's book every night is pizza night <laughs> um yeah i mean that that is the i mean that's the exact message in the book is that um uh, you can't say that one food is, you know, is better than another food. Something is the best because every, um, because yeah, because best is a completely situational thing. Uh, and it's not something that you can sort of come up with a, a scientific measure for, you know. Hmm. Let me go to callers and start with Arlinda in Oakland. Hi, Arlinda. Hi. Um, I had a walk 
uh, years ago when I had a gas stove because it had a round bottom, you know, over the gas stove. Mm-hmm. And now I have electric stove, so I had to get rid of that wok. How do you really use a wok on an electric stove and get the kind of results that you would like? Thanks, Arlinda. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, uh, on, so there are certain things that you won't be able to do on an electric stove. So, um, it, in particular, um, dishes that require um, wok hay, that sort of smoky flavor, um, those are difficult to do in an electric. There, there's a couple of workarounds that I have in my book um, uh, for how to get that flavor using a excuse me using a kitchen torch. But without that, um, you got you are going to need a gas stove. But the good news is that that's not, you know, that is not a flavor that you necessarily need for the majority of wok cooked dishes. And most other types of dishes will work fine in an electric stove. Um, you do want a, um, a flat bottom wok for that, though. So I, I typically recommend a, a 14 inch carbon steel flat bottom wok um, for anybody who's going to be cooking with, you know, unless you have a specialty wok burner or an outdoor wok burner or something like that. Uh, most people, I think, are going to want a flat bottom wok. And that'll work with induction or electric or uh, um, gas. I'm glad you mentioned that, Arlinda, because I had a similar question because I too have an electric stove. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was um, a recipe in your chapter on rice. Uh, And Mm -hmm. this is actually your section on rice porridge because Mm -hmm. I... I used to have juk as a kid. My mom would make juk all the time for me. And I've actually never Mm. seen a recipe. And I was also really struck that it doesn't have to be made with broken rice grains. So can you describe describe this sort of favorite rice porridge recipe of yours and the technique to making it right? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, you you can make it. So, I mean, it's really just about time and and rice to water ratio. Juk is a, yeah, rice porridge where basically you take... Um, it can be made with broken rice that you're going to cook down until it until it becomes sort of velvety and creamy. Um, but you can do it with regular rice. And in fact, I most often make it with leftover rice. So rice that, um, you know, whenever I cook rice, I cook more than I need for that meal. Um, and then the leftovers uh, either will, uh, you know, I'll, I'll microwave in the morning and make tamago kake gohan, which is um, a Japanese dish of you know, egg and rice. Um, or I'll turn some of it into... Um, fried rice, or I'll make um, rice porridge out of it. And so, when you make it out of leftover rice, it takes you know half an hour. Um, if you're making it from scratch, it'll take a couple hours. And uh, but it's basically just letting the rice cook down uh, and um, until it's until it's creamy, and it becomes a really good base for any number of other things that you want to sort of stir into it or add to it as it's cooking. Um, I was also struck by the fact that I think you admit in your book that you don't really know how to cook rice. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's a little bit of an, I've, I've gotten better over the years at cooking rice, but, um, but yeah, you know, it's like, I grew up in a family with where there was just a rice cooker on the counter and always rice cooking in a rice cooker. So I don't think it was until like college when I, there's a little period I went through where I didn't have a rice cooker. It was like, oh, you can, you can cook rice on the stovetop. And I had to like <laughs> look up recipes for how to do it. Um, and then. I, w- I always wanted to peek under the lid and so I would let the steam out and so the rice wouldn't cook properly. Um, but I found, yeah, I found the, the real, <laughs> the key for cooking rice without a rice cooker is, is just not being impatient about it. Don't try and like see what's going on. Just just trust the process. <laughs> We're talking with Kenji Lopez Alden. We'll have more with him and you, our listeners, after the break. In the meantime, think about your questions for Kenji or if you want to share your favorite Kenji recipe or technique. 
Let us know at 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the art and science of wok cooking with Kenji Lopez-Alt, who's written a book called The Wok, Recipes and Techniques. You might also know him for his New York Times food column. He's also host of Kenji's Cooking Show on YouTube. And his previous book is The Food Lab. He also has a children's book, Every Night is Pizza Night. If you have questions for Kenji or questions about wok cooking or want to share your favorite Kenji recipe or technique, 866-733-6786 is the number to call. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or at KQED Forum. You can post thoughts on Instagram or email us, forum at kqed.org. This listener writes, what kind of wok do you recommend? Some are really expensive, but I'm not sure they're worth the price. Um, <laughs> um, if it's an expensive walk, it's probably not worth the price. Um, I don't think you, you really need to, you know, unless you're, unless you're in an area where you really can only mail order it, um, and, you know, there's high delivery fees or something you might, you know, I don't think you really need to spend more than $50 or so on a walk, 40 to $50. Um, what you should be looking for is a, uh, carbon steel walk, um, non, so non-coated, so not like a non-stick walk, um, not nothing stainless, anything like that. You just want a carbon steel walk, um, 14 inches flat bottom with a, um, a handle on both sides. So a, a long handle and a helper, helper handle on the opposite side. Um, and then, uh, you just want to make sure that it's, um, you know, around one and a half to two millimeters thick, um, in, in that, in that range so that it's not, you know, any, anything less than that. And it starts to get a little flimsy and will start to warp on you. Um, but within that range, that range of criteria, there's like a ton of walks out there. Um, if you live, you know, in a city that has a, um, a Chinatown or some kind of East Asian supermarket, um, you can probably find a good walk there for relatively inexpensive. Um, if you're ordering online, um, I recommend the walk shop. Uh, so the walkshop.com, um, you know, the walk shop is in, it's in Chinatown, uh, in San Francisco. Um, and, uh, they sell great walks. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure on Amazon you can probably find really good walks too. But you know, there, as, as long as, as as it's within that range um, of criteria, um, a carbon steel walk is basically a carbon steel walk. So it'll um, and you don't really need to, to seek out any specific expensive brand or anything like that. Let me go to caller Pallavi in Fremont. Hi, Pallavi. Oh, hi. Um, I had a question for Kenji. What's the most unique thing you've cooked on the walk? Thanks, strangest, the most, most unique. <laughs> <laughs> um, strangest, most unique thing. Uh, well, there's this one recipe in the book for um, uh, these pizza flavored. So these, I can't remember what they're called, but the, in the book, but they're um, they're kind of like garlic knot pizza flavored things that um, I made sort of in the style of a of a Chinese scallion pancake. So the way you you know the way the way you laminate a Chinese scallion pancake and make it um, sort of flaky is by uh, rolling out the dough flat, then rolling it up like a jelly roll and twisting that into a coil and then sort of re-rolling it flat again. I um, mean, that creates these flaky layers. Um, so there's a recipe in the book where 
Uh, I do that with um, leftover pizza dough uh, and then kind of just shallow fry it in the bottom of a wok until it puffs up. Um, and I've, you know, I did that mainly because I had a, I had some leftover pizza dough in my, in my kitchen one night and I was like, what's a thing I can do with this? Uh, and I was, I happen to have been working on the, um, some of the scallion pancake recipes in the, in the book. Uh, so I stuck those two things together and it ended up being quite delicious. <laughs> wow. It sounds great. Thanks for all of you. Let me go to Darcy next in Santa Rosa. Hi, Darcy. Yes. Hi. What's on your mind? My question for the chef is about walk collars. I grew up with my mother was the daughter of a, a chef from China who had two restaurants that he owned and cooked in. And my question is, my mother always used a walk collar and a round bottom carbon walk. And I'm wondering how on an electric stove. And so um, with the flat bottom walks and more modern stoves um what basically is there a place for a walk collar hmm. so when you're saying walk collar you're talking about a walk ring like the the metal ring that you stick on the yes. bottom that lets you use a round bottom walk yes yes and that, i'm wondering with it i guess with the flat bottom then that would not be appropriate uh yeah so you wouldn't use that with a flat bottom walk um so yeah so th those rings are mainly just to they're sort of adapters, right? That'll let that let you use a round bottom tool on on a, a stovetop that's designed for flat bottom things. Um, I, I typically don't recommend them because I find that a flat bottom work actually walk works better, so it's a little more stable. Um, you're, you're not worried about kind of knocking this ring around as you as you stir fry and toss things. Um, a flat bottom walk is just going to sort of sit in a more stable position on your stovetop. Um, and the you know the advantages that you get from using a round bottom walk, um, I think. They're outweighed by by the stability of a flat bottom walk and, and sort of the compatibility with um, Western style stoves. So you know you're you're able to get the walk closer to the heat source when you're using a flat bottom instead of elevating it up um, on the ring. Um, so you know they're they're good if all you have if you have a round bottom walk that you walk that you really love and you happen to have a gas burner, um, then you know that that's a good thing to have. But um, otherwise, I, I typically recommend just the flat bottom walk because it works on any you know electric or induction or uh, gas. Well, thanks, Darcy, for that question. This sister writes, I have made Kenji's scrambled eggs and they changed my breakfast game and my life. Wow, they're creamy <laughs> and foolproof. So delicious. Thank you, Kenji. Okay, so we should talk about this one. I think this recipe developed like a cult following. Um, it was your recipe for creamy layered scrambled eggs, which is what I think this person's probably referring to because it was like the number one most popular recipe on the New York Times cooking app yeah. last year. <laughs> so, so talk about like what what's, what made it so delicious? What did you learn? <laughs> um, well, there's a couple things. Um, so, well, I mean, you know, that particular recipe, there's there's a lot of butter in it. But, but you know, the techniques that you use in it, you don't have to also work even without all the extra butter. Um, but, the, you know, the main, the main thing that um, I do in that recipe is I add a little cornstarch slurry um, to the eggs as I, as I beat them, um, as well as little cubes of butter. Um, but the, you know, the cornstarch slurry, um, it's was actually a technique I got from um, Mandy Lee from the, um, uh, Mandy Lee's a, a, food, a food writer who also has a great book out right now. But um, uh, she, you know, I, I learned it from her and I had also seen a similar technique um, for um, these eggs called um, Wampoa eggs. Mm. Uh, 
which are from Guangzhou. There's a recipe for it in the book, actually, but I saw um, some friends of mine uh, who have a YouTube channel, um, Chinese Cooking Demystified, they made these eggs um, where they also added a cornstarch slurry um, to the eggs. So, you know, so that's where the, that sort of testing that out came. Uh, and what it does is it, it, it makes it so that your eggs um, don't bind as tightly. So they retain moisture better. So your eggs will stay sort of moister, whether you like them hard cooked or soft cooked or whatever, hard scrambled or soft scrambled, um, they're going to stay a little bit moister uh, than they would uh, if you nor if you cook them just without that cornstarch slurry. And, um, and, you know, and then the little, there's little cubes of butter in there as you beat them um, that as the eggs cook, it kind of creates these little, um, these little pockets that are slightly less done than the rest of the egg because, you know, the butter, the butter insulates and some of the heat energy goes into melting that butter. Um, and so I find that you get, yeah, you, you get a lot, a lot more leeway as far as, as far as getting the eggs out at the perfect consistency, whatever consistency you like them. Um, and they stay moister. You know, those eggs, I've seen them described as like the best as well as the perfect eggs, scrambled eggs, which of course we were talking earlier about are terms that you sort of stepped back from a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think there is, you know, this real sense of competition in the chef world. And you've also referred to, um, oh my gosh, my producer is writing, they are perfect eggs, even if he doesn't want to own it. <laughs> 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 but um, but there is this sort of culture defined by so much competition. People have have called out the bro, you know, sort of cook culture that's yeah. out there. I wonder what you think about that. If you feel like people are realizing that it is it is not something that uh, a lot of people are drawn to or like about right. that life. <laughs> um, I you know, I I think people are realizing it. I mean, I I certainly think it's there's there's more talk about it. And I think, um, you know, from my more, my limited recent exposure to professional kitchen, because I, I worked in kitchens 20 years ago um, and not so much more recently, but, you know, from my limited exposure now, I think kitchens are, are seem to be moving in the right direction, but, you know, becoming more sort of respectful workplaces as opposed to, um, uh, you know, more abusive ones. Um, but yeah, you know, there, there is that, there's this sort of macho streak to, um, to cooking and especially I think cooking, um, uh, well, you know, cooking on TV and like all the competition shows and all mm -hmm. that, this is kind mm -hmm. of macho streak to it all. Um, that, um, I, yeah, I still think I see, I mean, I see it reflected still in, in, you, you know, comment sections for recipes or YouTube comments or, um, or some, some YouTube shows, uh. Uh, you know, I generally try and very actively avoid it um, uh, because, you know, it, it is like a culture that, uh, you know, I was I was in that when I when I, you know, when I was a cook, I was exposed to it every day um, and I didn't really enjoy it. So so I try and um, actively um, discourage it from my own channels uh, and avoid it when I see it these days. Did you feel like you'd contributed to it? Um, you know, only, not in in the sort of passive way that everybody you know, contributes to a problem that they're not doing anything about, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and certainly, I felt that um, um, you know, after having worked in restaurants for years, um, just the way that you interact with people, um, well, you know, whether it's it's restaurants like you, you kind of just you know, you, you have single word interactions that, that, that help because you're always on a, in a hurry to get somewhere, you know? And so I sort of found myself becoming very short with people in, in the real world, you know, like getting mad at the person in front of me at the supermarket because they were walking too slow, for example, you know, some, things like that, um, where, 
this behavior that um, you think seems appropriate because you're working in a restaurant environment all the time uh, sort of bleeds over into into actual life um, where it's um, you know even less appropriate than it is um, in restaurants and things. So, so um, you know, so in that sense, I, I think my contribution to it was just taking so long to realize that it was you know negatively affecting um, my life outside of restaurants. So much of the conversations that I read leading up to our conversation today suggested that you're at a different stage in your life. You're in Seattle now. You've, you're mm -hmm. uh, nearly a full-time dad. <laughs> um, how, what stage would you say you're in? Um, you know, I, I've been extraordinarily lucky um, in that um, I've managed to you know, find a career that I am passionate about and enjoy. Um, and also, you know, to have found success in that. And so I, I you know, I'm I, years ago, I was more at this point where I felt like I needed to, you know, compete to succeed in this field. And I needed to have, you know, the articles with the most views and the, and the most clicks and the whatever, um, in order to succeed. Um, and, you know, these days I'm much more of a, you know, I'm at a position where, 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 you know, life is comfortable. We have children, like we can care for them. And we're lucky enough that we have, you know, we have two working parents and we are, we're lucky enough that I'm able to take time off to be with them. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm mainly trying to focus on that right now. And um, the, the writing and, and the, the other projects that I'm doing all, you know, my, my career wise, um, I'm trying to maintain it at a level where I can still be, um, completely passionate about each project that I work on, um, but where it doesn't sort of take over my entire life the way it, it used to um, when I was in my, you know, late 20s and early 30s. We're talking with Kenji Lopez-Alton. This is a fundraising period for KQED and many public radio stations. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, we've got more calls and comments. Let me go next to Lynn in Berkeley. Hi, Lynn. Hi. Go right ahead. Um, my question is, um, is there any way to season a wok without having an oven? A few years ago, I went out and bought one, um, brought it home and discovered that it's supposed to be seasoned in the oven, and I'm not a great cook. I don't know much about it. But anyway, is there any way to use it without seasoning it in an oven? Thanks. Yeah. Um, so so seasoning a wok, um, you know, the, the reason you season a wok is, you know, one made, one made out of carbon steel. Um, uh, the the main reason that you're seasoning at the very beginning is to get rid of the the manufacturer's coating because while you know carbon steel it rusts in the air so they coat it with this um, like machine oil that you gotta uh, basically burn off and then scrub out. Um, so an oven is one way to do it. Um, if you if you're able to take the wooden handle off your wok um, and stick it in the oven, you can do it in the oven. Um, if you have a gas range, then it's very easy. You basically just put it over the gas range and rotate it around. Um, until every surface kind of turns black, uh, and that you know that that's an indication it's been seasoned. Um, if you have a induction or an electric or an electric range, um, it's much more difficult to season a wok. So what I typically recommend for those is either um, you know if you if you have a outdoor barbecue something like that, you can season it out season it outdoors the same way you would do it with gas indoors, um, or uh, using a like a, a butane or a propane kitchen torch, um, so you can. You can season the bottom directly on the stovetop, and then all the curved parts that you have a little more difficulty getting into contact. Basically, just go over them with a kitchen torch, 
until they get that same black color. Um, so it, yeah, it, it definitely is possible to season the walk, um, whatever the, uh, whatever the equipment you have. Um, but it, it, it can, it can, the difficulty of doing it can vary a little. Well, then thanks for the question. Let me see if I can squeeze Scott in Fort Bragg in here. Hi, Scott. Hey folks. Thanks for having me on. Um, my question is I've, I've been using a walk as a primary cooking implement, um, since an extended residence in Asia and coming back to the States, of course, the stoves, the gas ones and the electric ones didn't have the power that I had when I was living in Taiwan, for example. Um, so I picked mm -hmm. up a propane burner that mm -hmm. was like a blowtorch, and that was great, but not real good for indoor use. And then as years went on, I started thinking more about sustainability and about fossil fuels and about trying to get away from using uh, a propane burner, and I started looking for induction walk burners that were rounded, oh. and I found one online. And I got right. it, and I actually like it quite a bit, but it wasn't the best construction. There weren't many options out there. So I was wondering if you had a suggestion mm. for a, a round bottom induction walk burner. Scott, thanks. Yeah, so round bottom walk induction burner. So I actually have one with me right now uh, that I travel with um, for when I do sort of live demos and stuff. Um, mine is is the Galaxy. Um, it's an 1800 watt. So it's essentially the, the, the highest wattage you can get out of a, you know, pull out of a, a standard 120 volt uh, thing when beyond this one, you know, if you want to get a more powerful one or a more sort of robustly made one, they start um, from what I've seen, they start going up in price um, into the sort of thousands of dollars because they're typically really aimed at um, restaurant use. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't I, I don't have a lot of experience testing a lot of different models. Um, it's really just this one that I've that I've worked with. I, but I've been um, I've been impressed with how it works. I, I bought it from um, Webstaurant store, you know, which is where. Uh, used to be a, a restaurant supply store, but now they now they sell direct to everybody through. The, um, I think they started doing that through the pandemic. Um, but yeah, that's the one I use in it, uh, on the road, and it works great. Um, but uh, but like I said, I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, if, if you're if you're looking for something for home use, you can probably um, get a more powerful one because um, you know because because you'll be permanently wired and you don't need <laughs> to just rely on a 120 volt cable. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, Scott, thanks for the question. And we've just got less than a minute, but you've convinced a lot of people, I think, to appreciate the walk. Wondering if uh, there's another project on the horizon we should be looking out for from you, Kenji. Um, I'm going to be, I mean, you know, this book was took a long time, um, <laughs> I, but I'm going to be, um, I'll probably be taking some time just with my family for a while because we have a a young son at home now as well. Uh, and then, um, you know, my, I, my, the next project I'm working on, I, I, I want to work on a couple more kids books and, uh, um, longer term, I'm planning on writing a, um, a book aimed at parents who want to get their kids more involved in the kitchen. So, so not necessarily a children's cookbook, but something aimed at the parents of children who, uh, they want to get to be helpful in the nice. kitchen. Nice. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Kenji Lopez-Alt, you've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.